You have attuned to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Welcome to this third episode of the Archaeology Fundamentals installment. So, you know, we've covered quite a bit already in our first two episodes. These were really kind of like primers uh, to help listeners get a feel for what the discipline of archaeology is. So you'll recall that we uh, busted some myths and misconceptions regarding archaeology. Uh, we talked about the archaeology pioneers who have shaped the discipline over the course of millennia. And we've also situated archaeology within the broad field of anthropology. So these first two episodes got us ready. Uh, for where we're going to go today and through the rest of the course. Um, today, we're going to start diving into the real nuts and bolts of archaeology. Um, and today, we're going to start unpacking some of the practical methods that uh, professional archaeologists use to discover what we call archaeological sites. So uh, an archaeological site being uh, any place where material evidence where artifacts exist about the human past. So one of the most common questions that I get as an archaeologist is, you know, how do you know where to dig in the first place? Well, there really are a lot of methods uh, that archaeologists uh, can use to identify the approximate location of archaeological sites, uh, as well as their boundaries. So in some cases, um, the remnants of a site may be literally visible on the ground surface. So we might encounter artifact scatters literally directly on the ground, or uh, perhaps come across uh, these really curious looking uh, features. Uh, we might literally be able to see these features like mounds, uh, depressions, for example. And these provide clues to us that perhaps somebody once lived here in the past. Sometimes the location of a site uh, can also be revealed in historic documents. So here, uh, maps and property deeds, for example, often provide clues about a site's location and where a structure once stood. In other cases, the location of a site uh, may be known to uh, others in a community. So by interviewing people or perhaps recording oral history, archaeologists uh, might be able to determine the location of a site. Now, relatedly are sagas and stories. Sagas and stories are kind of like written versions uh, of oral histories, if you will. And these may also hint at the location of a site. Uh, so Viking sagas were very instrumental in identifying the location of a site named Lancio Meadows, uh, which is this notable Viking site in Newfoundland, Canada, uh, that's actually been connected to Leif Erikson. Um, but yet in other cases, uh, we can also find archaeological sites by sheer luck uh, when we aren't looking to find one. So I've actually encountered sites uh, while doing uh, some recreational hiking. 
construction projects uh, may also accidentally reveal a hidden location of archaeological sites, even though the goal of that construction project was not to discover one, it's to build a building. But one famous example I'll share with you uh, is the discovery of Dutch explorer Adrian Bloch's ship named the Tiger. The Tiger was the ship that Bloch used to explore the east coast of North America, uh, but unfortunately she was lost to a fire in 1613 while she was anchored in Manhattan. Now the ship was discovered some 300 years later uh, in 1916 by James Kelly uh, when crews were digging for Manhattan's uh, subway lines uh, near, the, uh, near the World Trade Center. So sometimes we uh, actually discover sites when we least expect it while we're out hiking or maybe a construction project uh, might reveal a site that we're not otherwise looking for. Now, naming an archaeological site is also the job of an archaeologist. Um, sites can be named after topographic features. Um, so uh, your rivers, mountains, lakes, uh, cliffs, caves, even rock formations. This is actually super common. And uh, if you continue in archaeology, you'll definitely come across this a lot. Sometimes sites uh, are named after the people or the families who own the land uh, in which the site was discovered on. Uh, so, for example, one site that I worked at uh, is called the Salisbury site, uh, which was named by archaeologist Dorothy Cross, who we've uh, talked about in a previous episode. But Cross named the site after the Salisbury family uh, who owned uh, the property that the site was located on. Uh, and this one I think you'll love. Uh, archaeologists have also appropriated pop culture references when naming sites. Uh, Gimme Shelter Cave in California, for example, was named after the famous Rolling Stones song. Sites can also get their names uh, from legend and folklore. So Danger Cave in Utah was originally called Hands and Knees Cave because of how you needed to enter the site on your hands and knees because the clearance was so low. However, the site was renamed Danger Cave in 1941 when a piece of the cave's lip rolled off uh, and actually just narrowly escaped uh, the field crew. Now, each archaeological site in the U.S. is given a unique string of alphanumeric characters. These are what we call site numbers, and sometimes they're also called Smithsonian numbers. So these are these unique catalog identifications that are given to every archaeological site. And if you know how to decode them, they actually reveal quite a bit of information about the site itself. So the first number of a site number is a reference to the state's position alphabetically. The number 28, for example, is the designation for the state of New Jersey. The middle letters that appear refer to the county in which the site was identified in. So for example, um, the letters M, 
O, uh, that's the designation for New Jersey's Monmouth County, M-O for Monmouth County. Now, the last set of numbers uh, that appear symbolize the site's number in the county. So, for example, if the last number in a Smithsonian designation is 100, that means that uh, the archaeological site was the 100th site to be identified in that particular county. So for practice, you might actually see if you can decode uh, the information in the following Smithsonian numbers. This would be good practice. Try this. Try 28BU414. So 414. And try a second one if you have time. Uh, try 28MO192. 192. Okay? Now, um, in this next segment of our talk, uh, what I'd like to do is pivot a bit more directly to the field methods archaeologists use to survey for archaeological sites. Sometimes archaeologists might be working in an area that maybe they're not familiar with. It's, it's foreign to them. They're not from there. So in these cases where the archaeologist is an outsider, uh, she may want to speak with local informants who have insider knowledge because maybe they grew up there. They know the landscape. So archaeologists might hang out in local shops and restaurants to meet local people. Archaeologist David Hurst Thomas learned about the location of Gatecliff Rock Shelter in central Nevada from a waitress at a steakhouse. So as it turns out, her husband, uh, whose name is Gail Peer, uh, was a mining geologist who actually prospected in the area of central Nevada and was familiar with the site that Thomas uh, was long seeking. So the husband uh, ends up drawing this map from memory for Thomas on the back of his own business card. And lo and behold, uh, Gatecliff uh, became this very famous archaeological site. Uh, it's one of the deepest rock shelters uh, in both Americas, actually. So, you know, this act of speaking with local informants to identify the location of a site is what some archaeologists might call a, uh, a, a gumshoe survey. Now, something to keep in mind as we begin to talk about excavating sites now is really what the end goal is. What's the goal of an excavation in the first place? What's the goal of doing the archeology? span Well, the goal of the archeology span really is to document and recover enough material evidence to make an interpretation about a site, to maybe tell a story about who lived there. So this actually does not mean that we excavate 100% of a site. We usually don't do that. Um, archaeologists usually don't endeavor to excavate a site in its entirety, and there are a few good reasons for this. So we want to leave a portion intact for the next generation of archaeologists who can apply, um, you know, their cutting-edge technology to learn from the site, perhaps in ways that we cannot imagine today. Secondly, it takes a lot of time to excavate just a small portion of a site. As you'll see, 
field work can be this very tedious process because archaeologists uh, excavate so slowly. So although at times um, it can be appropriate to use large machinery like a bobcat, for example, to move soil uh, that's disturbed in order to reveal cultural features beneath what we call fill, most of the digging is actually done by hand using uh, tools that you might have in your garages or sheds, um, like shovels, trowels, whisk brooms, um, and even uh, dental tools like picks and such. So doing archeology span requires an investment of time and it requires a lot of patience. And lastly, I wanna emphasize that excavating a site can actually be a pretty costly operation when you consider having to pay a crew of say 10 archeologists uh, to get the job done. So, you know, when we are in the field, we endeavor to excavate what we call a sample from the site, meaning that we only dig a portion of it, a sliver. Uh, we might examine one specific area of a site based on a hunch or intuition, or maybe we even have clues to work off of from a historic document. Uh, you know, we have a clue that something important could be here. In that case, right, this is called non-probabilistic sampling because we're not randomly sampling. Probabilistic sampling, however, is when an archaeologist examines an area at random. <clears throat> they don't have a hunch. They don't have clues to work off of. So um, in this case of probabilistic sampling, an area might be divided into a grid and the archaeologist may select only a portion of that grid to work off, say, for example, a 20% sample. Probabilistic sampling is preferred in some cases, uh, say, when an archaeologist uh, doesn't have these hunches or clues to work from. The other thing we want to say is that, um, you know, unlike, say, rock shelters or, you know, Egypt's Great Pyramids, uh, which are above ground surface and have high visibility, most archaeological finds, especially those in Europe and the eastern U.S., where soil accumulates like really fast, most archaeological findings are below the ground surface. So that's where we need to look. We need to look beneath the surface to uh, find archaeological sites to sample them. So sometimes the plowing activities of farmers um, help this process along for us a bit. So as farmers plow and till the soil, any artifacts that might be in the upper levels of a soil matrix or what we call the plow zone actually get pushed up towards the surface from the machine. So archaeologists uh, can actually walk a field after it's been plowed or worked to see if any artifacts are present. Um, more often than not, though, we're left to do this hard work by ourselves. And we have a bunch of techniques to help us do that. A technique called shovel testing is standard practice in the industry of cultural resource management. And if you ever get a chance to work on an archaeology project, I bet you'll probably be involved in one of these surveys. Uh, they're also called phase one surveys. So STPs, as we call them, um, are often laid out over a survey area 
uh, in this grid-like fashion. Um, shovel testing involves digging these relatively shallow pits with a shovel. Uh, and by shallow, I want to define that for you. They're usually on the order of about like three feet deep. Um, so we do this across a surface area in uh, uh, systematic intervals of say every 30 feet or perhaps every 50 feet, for example. And this really depends on how much of a site we feel we need to sample. So the purpose of doing these STPs is to determine the boundaries of a site by looking at artifact densities and identifying the location of possible features. And the results of doing um, STP survey, uh, excuse me, surveys help us. They help archaeologists decide where we might want to open up larger excavation areas if we want to continue research there. Archaeologist Kathy Deegan, who I think you'll recall from a previous episode, popularized the use of a gas-powered auger or post hole digger to get uh, STPs done much more quickly than mechanical digging can. So augers need to be operated by two people, but they can drill three feet into the ground in actually less than about a minute. Um, so it definitely gets the job done uh, more quickly but at the expense of losing the context or uh, location information about the artifacts that uh, literally are thrown up from the ground surface by this device. So sometimes archaeologists may actually have to sift through uh, the back dirt from the auger for artifacts. But ultimately, you know, it's the archaeologist's job to evaluate whether augering or a good old-fashioned shovel testing is appropriate. Uh, and this really depends on, you know, the archaeological sensitivity of a site. Um, it depends on budget concerns, how much money does a project have. And it also may uh, be contingent upon what the archaeologist's research questions are. Um, now, uh, shovel testing and auger testing can be very useful methods um, to help locate uh, an archaeological site and define its boundaries. Um, and they're very, uh, very relatively low budget. Um, but we want to underscore that these techniques do risk uh, damaging some elements of a site because they are invasive. They do involve putting holes in the ground. Um, they literally entail uh, almost like what we call Swiss cheesing uh, through a site. So in cases where um, budget permits, uh, where there might be enough budget to, uh, uh, to work in uh, some more sophisticated uh, instrumentation, archaeologists might favor a different method that we call remote sensing. Remote sensing uses electromagnetic energy to detect and measure archeological targets below the ground surface. Remote sensing allows the archeologist to see what lies beneath the surface without really like picking up a shovel, without digging or disturbing a site. So in this sense, remote sensing is kind of like um, almost taking an X-ray of the ground. We can see a snapshot of what is going on in the soil without removing the soil. But, uh, you know, like x-rays, remote sensing uh, can be very expensive. 
So some common types of remote sensing are magnetometry, soil resistivity, ground penetrating radar, and metal detecting. Now, the choice of remote sensing technique that one chooses has a great deal to do with what the archaeologist is looking for, their budget, um, and really the type of landscape that they need to survey. Um, what I'm going to do is place links to videos on each of these technologies in the Digging Deeper section, uh, which is at the very end of your learning guide. I really do recommend reviewing these um, to get a real nice visual sense of how each of these technologies operate. Um, but what I'll do over the next few minutes is highlight for you how each of these technologies uh, works and give you a sense of how they help archaeologists uh, in locating uh, features at an archaeological site. So magnetometry is, uh, measures the strength of magnetism uh, between the Earth's magnetic core and a sensor that's controlled by the archaeologist. As the magnetometer survey is conducted, uh, it produces a contour map of subsurface anomalies. Each kind of anomaly or each kind of feature produces a unique kind of magnetic profile. So for example, the magnetic profile of a burial will appear different uh, than the magnetic profile of, uh, say, excuse me, a hearth, a wall, or a building. Magnetometry is especially good for finding burned things, um, you know, because heat alters the magnetic profile of a feature in a way that orients the particles to face magnetic north. Magnetometers can be pretty um, almost hypersensitive, though. So we want to bear in mind that um, things that we're wearing, um, gadgets like watches, for example, um, to even geomagnetic storms, uh, which, which is the phenomena that creates those glorious northern lights, otherwise known as the aurora borealis, um, these kinds of things can uh, disrupt uh, the instrument. So we want to be aware of that. Soil resistivity is another popular remote sensing technique and it's worth noting here, I think, that this is a relatively low-cost remote sensing technology. A soil resistivity device monitors the electrical resistance of soils near the surface of a site. So with soil resistivity, uh, features are detected by differential resistance to electricity. For example, um, compact surfaces like pathways, roads, floors, um, even walls, those are highly resistant to electricity because water has a hard time penetrating through the pores of these features. On the other hand, less resistance is measured in soils that hold more water meaning uh, soils that don't have features or anomalies in them typically. Um, ground penetrating radar, or GPR as we call it, um, involves sending radar pulses directly into the ground uh, with an instrument, with the GPR instrument. The radar pulses reflect back to the surface when they strike an anomaly or a feature. 
GPR can show us a couple things. Uh, definitely the presence of these anomalies, but also the depth and the shape of it too. Uh, it's also one of the more costly remote sensing techniques, uh, but GPR produces some pretty uh, quick and uh, reliable results. The very last method that I'd like to highlight in our conversation about uh, locating archaeological sites by remote sensing is metal detecting. Metal detectors uh, you know, used to be referred to actually as the devil stick uh, by previous generations of archaeologists because they were so widely used by pretty much only looters uh, who were interested in recovering, uh, say, like old Civil War relics uh, and selling them on a black market. Today, you know, most archaeologists really have adjusted their views on metal detectors, um, though, because they can be real helpful tools and identifying the location, uh, nature of, uh, and boundary of an archeological site. Metal detectors are able to sense metal artifacts in the ground um, up to about a foot's depth, uh, which is a bit shallow uh, in comparison to some of the other remote sensing techniques. Um, but nevertheless, it can still be a useful diagnostic. Oh, and I also wanna tell you that these metal detectors are, are very low cost, relatively very low cost. Um, so even though they can only penetrate about a foot or so, um, they still can be useful. Uh, I also want to note here that they are only capable, as the name implies, uh, to identifying uh, the presence or absence of metal artifacts. So uh, our prehistoric sites uh, would be very hard to sense using a metal detector. Archaeologists uh, Dan Sivlage and colleagues have famously used metal detectors at Mammoth Battlefield, located in present-day Manalapan, New Jersey, to determine the locations of uh, British and Continental uh, troops. In this week's Digging Deeper section of the Learning Guide, um, you'll also see that I actually link you to a really interesting news article that covers lead canister shot that tested positive for blood. Um, it was discovered by a professional metal detecting society that works under Sivlage's direction. So you'll be able to read a little bit about how archaeologists have made sense of this unique find uh, in the news article. On that note, uh, we've reached the end of today's talk. Uh, as always, thank you so much for streaming the Fundamentals of Archaeology season on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Have an awesome week, everybody, and take good care.